0: Well, if you continue to turn to your Bibles to James, chapter 1, 5 through 11. I've titled this sermon, The Pursuit of a Wholehearted Christianity. Pursuit of a Wholehearted Christianity. I'm going to do Two parts, part 1, and then part 2 will be next Sunday, verses 12 through 18. Pursuit of a Wholehearted Christianity, part 2, next week. Well, let me uh, start from the beginning because they kind of go together, so we'll start from the verses we considered last Sunday, and we'll read the verses that we will study today this morning. We'll start from the beginning. James 1, verse 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are in the dispersion, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the Testing of your faith brings about perseverance, and let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position, and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. I think many of the reasons why so many Christians are content with spiritual mediocrities is because we mistakenly think that the goal of Christianity is being a nice person. As long as we're just a little bit more sober than our neighbor who gets drunk every night, or as long as we're not as mean and bossy as some executive or higher up at our jobs, or if we can find a, a couple of people at our church that we think we know less about the Bible than we do, then we. We fool ourselves into thinking that we just can continue our uninspired second-rate humdrum spiritual lives. But if in the course of the next three or four months we are able to fully grasp the message of James and come to the realization that God is in the in the business of transformation and not and, and not making you a nicer person, then the study, then the study of this book has the real potential. Of being a pivotal moment in your life. The goal of our salvation in this life is is not becoming a a nicer person. The goal is becoming a a new person. We are to be new people, not nice people. C.S. Lewis, in chapter 10 of his classic book, Mere Christianity, in a chapter titled Nice People or New Men, argues that niceness is not really the goal of God in salvation. He says that there are there a are, there are countless number of people who are nice in the world, who are content with their niceness, and looking no further than that, turn away from the gospel. In other words, hell is a world filled with nice people. Mere improvement is not enough for God. It is transformation that is God's goal for you and me. C.S. Lewis wrote, God became... Man to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but but to produce a a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. If you think about it, it's really not that hard to be nice. It doesn't take too much to be a nicer person than you already are, especially for a couple of hours on a week on Sunday morning. But think about what we studied last Sunday in the first four, four verses of James. God puts us through the forge of trials to accomplish the goal of our salvation. Think about that. There are kinds of trials where God doesn't give you what you want most in life, and there are kinds of trials where God takes away what you love the most in life. And sometimes God doesn't allow you to accomplish your greatest ambitions no matter how hard you try. Sometimes he doesn't give spouses to men and women who really want them. Sometimes he doesn't give children to married couples who want children more than anything in the world. Sometimes he sends the worst kinds of accidents and allows the most horrific kinds of physical maiming and diseases i mentioned last sunday a prominent christian uh, blogger and writer who lost his 20-year-old 20-year-old no, son who was at college and, and and god is the one who did that do you actually think that god took this 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 saint's son away so that his father could be a nicer person when you consider the kind of trials god gives to all of us then it makes it very plain that that then makes it very obvious that the goal of our salvation is much more profound and deeper than we realize. The trials that that God sends our way in life only makes sense when we accept that the goal of our salvation isn't improvement. It isn't a better horse, but transformation. The goal is a is a winged creature. Last Sunday we considered the goal of trials is not being a nicer person, but it's as verse 4 of chapter 1, James tells us, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, trials make sense when that is the goal. That's why the Christian life is so hard. That's why our salvation is so difficult, because the goal is that high. And that's why you are to rejoice in the most difficult kinds of trials because the goal of salvation is worth every single trial we experience. It's not worth it if the goal is just being nice. See, the goal that James stated last Sunday in the first four verses of chapter 1 is just a rewording of the goal that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's why Jesus says, Blessed are you when you're poor in spirit. Blessed are you when uh, you're meek. Blessed are you when people say horrible things about you. Blessed are you when people persecute you. Why? Because he's making you perfect, he's conforming you into his image. And he says, Rejoice. Blessed. Be happy about that. James says the same thing. Last Sunday we began studying a new book after spending about a year in the book of Acts and we learned that the the thesis of the letter of James is a wholehearted commitment to Christ. Christ doesn't just want a part of our hearts or, or half of your heart, he wants all of our hearts. All of our minds, all of our bodies, all of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our motives, all of who you are. Because that is the very least we can do for Christ who gave us all of himself when he died on the cross for our sin. No, 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 no. Being nice will not do, brothers and sisters. Transformation can be the only prerogative in our lives. As we studied last Sunday, James started his letter in verses 1 through 4 with the command to be joyful in trials, in fact, to embrace trials because of the potential they have in spurring on spiritual growth. Now in verses 5 through 8, James exhorts us to pray with undivided faith for the wisdom we need to have to endure those same trials. And then, in verses 9 through 11, James writes about the trials of poverty and wealth, trials we should rejoice in and ask God for wisdom to endure through. And I have two points for you this morning. Point number one is found in verses 5 through 8, ask God for the wisdom required in trials. And point number two, found in verses 9 through 11, overcome the trials of poverty and wealth through a new identity. Let's consider point number one in verses five through eight. Ask God for the wisdom required in trials. Instead of getting angry at God in our trials and asking, why me? James tells us to instead ask God for wisdom. The spiritual perfection and Christ-like divine character that is the goal of trials for the truth of verses two through four must be accompanied by biblical wisdom. He says in verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. In other words, your own personal willpower is insufficient to get through a trial the way God wants you to. Running away from God during a trial is not going to help you. Hiding from God or hiding from people until the trials pass away like a bad thunderstorm is a wasted opportunity for spiritual growth. James says, don't play with God in trials. Pray to God. James begins verse 5 with a conditional statement, but if any of you lacks wisdom, and it's what we call a first-class condition, that means James assumes this if statement or this conditional clause is, is true. And so he's inviting you in. There's never a day that goes by where where we do not lack wisdom, we're always lacking the sufficient wisdom we need to handle a trial successfully. And because, and even though we have this new nature as believers, because of the fallenness of our flesh, idiocy is often the default reaction to trials. As soon as trials land on our doorsteps, I mean, we could be like, after a great quiet time, you ever have those moments you read, for an hour, and then you pray for 30 minutes, and you're in your car, and you're singing to the Lord, and somebody cuts in front of you, and you just lose it. See, when trials land at our doorsteps, we act like fools so many times. Because wisdom isn't automatically accessible within ourselves, even as believers. If we want wisdom in trials, God makes prayer the necessary condition. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, James invites us to consider. What what is wisdom anyways? Well, James is going to talk about wisdom more in chapter 3, but suffice it to say for now, biblical wisdom in a nutshell is the ability, listen, it is the ability ability to apply the knowledge of God's word for practical day-to-day living. Wisdom helps me apply God's salvation plan, the plans that I make in my personal life. Wisdom allows me to have God's perspective in a trial instead of my own perspective. My personal perspective has been conditioned for years by selfish pleasures and sinful ambitions until the day God saved me. And and it's still a a perspective that I I struggle to put off as a believer. So I need God's divine, heavenly perspective instead of my own perspective. That's why I ask for God's wisdom. Wisdom gives me the ability to trust in the promises of God instead of the promises of, of, of a fallen culture. Wisdom recalls to my mind all of Christ's commands and the the strength to obey those commands and trials that tempt me to uh, break God's word. Wisdom allows me to see that the point of my trials is not ultimately my personal comfort, but his glory, hallowed be thy name. And this kind of wisdom, as I said, isn't an automatic download from deep within us. us. This kind of wisdom comes from above, and it can only come through prayer. In other words, wisdom is a gift of God that must be asked for constantly. There is a difference between asking a favor from a stranger and asking a favor from somebody you know. I, remember I would I would fly in from uh, California. My, my my wife and kids would be there, uh, with their with with my, my, my wife's uh, mother, and uh, it was during COVID. I got I got into the to the Dulles Airport and it was like twelve thirty one a.m. and I'm like that's no problem. I'll just do my little Uber thing. Guess what? During COVID, nobody was working. So I'm like uh-oh. And there were a lot of people getting rides. I couldn't say, hey, can I get a ride? Uh, you, you don't know me, of course. No. I needed to ask somebody that I knew. I needed to ask a friend, hey, I, I know it's 1 a.m., can you come pick me up? And if we're honest, in trials, sometimes it feels like God is a stranger, that we don't want to bother, or like he doesn't care. Or we can, or we can mistakenly think, well, God is the one who brought the trial on my life, He isn't going to give me the resources I need to get through the trial. But that sort of thinking assumes, again, that the trial is bad for me. If the trial is for your highest good, then God is certainly going to give you what you need to navigate through the trial successfully. And that's what James reminds us of in verse 5, that the God that we need wisdom from says, he says, Ask of God who gives to all generously. In trials, God is not a miser. In trials, God is, is not a stranger. And in spite of what we feel or think, He gives to all His children generously. The word "oplos" in the Greek has more of the idea of sincerity without hesitation without reservation you know when, I, when my children ask for something that is good, that is necessary that is beneficial for them there's no reluctance on my part to give it to them I don't go back and forth and say to myself hmm should I give him breakfast I'm asking for milk should I give my son milk oh he just, he just cut himself should I give him a band-aid oh you need a backpack for school <laughs> hmm should I do that no It is sincere, it is without hesitation, and our Heavenly Father is the same way. He knows you need wisdom in your trials. He knows it's a good thing, so he gives it without hesitation, without mental reservation. You can expect to receive this kind of help, that his commitment to you is total. It's unreserved. Verse 5 says, He gives without reproach, He gives without a rebuke, without a charge. He he, he gives without a lecture. He never says, you need my help again? I mean, how many times are you going to ask me? What is wrong with you? Can't you deal with this on your own? I am busy. I have better things to do who our God is, James says in verse 5. No, no, if you ask for wisdom in trials, verse 5 says, in the end of verse 5, it will be given to him. Don't be reluctant about going to God for wisdom in trials. Sometimes I'm counseling somebody and somebody's telling me this, Massive problem. this is like layers complexity. and complexity and in my mind, in the beginning of the conversation, I, I, I say to myself, I have no idea what to say. If I don't know, then I ask God, oh, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. I just plead with God the whole time. give me wisdom. give me wisdom, Lord. And by the end, I say something and like, wow. wow. And I'm like, oh what, what just happened <laughs> Always, always gives his children for wisdom and trials. Uh, Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 7. Turn with me there. Matthew 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. This is where James's heart is. This is where his mind is. And Jesus says this. Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. But he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? When your children ask for a loaf of bread, you give them a, a rock? Verse 10, Or if he asks for a fish, you will not give him a snake, will he? If you then being evil, you know when... When when Hitler's children asked him for food, Hitler gave his children food. So if you being evil, the worst of you know do, do this, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? It is a preposterous notion to think that God will not give us wisdom during our trials. Lord Jesus is saying, you're, you're crazy to think that. But some of you are thinking to yourself, you know what, George, Pastor, I know what the Bible says, but I've been in trials in the past when I asked for help, when I asked for wisdom, I asked for grace, and I didn't get it. It seemed like, like I was talking to a brick wall. That God didn't answer my prayer. It felt like God had abandoned me in my darkness. And that happened more than once. What are you saying here? Well, James addresses that in verse 6. He describes the willing father in verse 5, and then he turns to the other side of the transaction, the believing child in verse 6. And James informs us that the reason why our request for help in trials, because the reason why they're not answered isn't because of God the Father. He says, the problem lies in the child of God who in his trial is also experiencing the crisis of faith. Verse 6 presents a very important condition, but he must ask in faith, doubting nothing. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. When we suffer in our trials, trials, they can can weaken our faith. They can can tear us down. and, and, And that's why these verses are so important for us. Trials can be incredibly dangerous because uh, trials directly attack what we need the most. We we need wisdom in trials, but there's nothing like trials that bring out what is most foolish in us. We need faith in trials, but there is nothing like trials that attack our faith the most. And so James is is saying what he, what he's saying in these verses is be careful of trials and don't let trials Do what they tend to do so well, what they tend to do the most. It says when you ask for for wisdom from God, there is a condition. He is not a a Coca-Cola dispensing machine. He's not a little bottle you can just rub, and the genie says, okay, three wishes. There is a condition, and the condition, is verse 6, but he must ask in faith. Verse 5, James says, "Ask, Yes, ask God in prayer for wisdom. But now he makes clear in verses 6 through 8 that we must ask in a particular way. We must must have a right kind of heart. There must be a, a, a particular kind of approach to him. Specifically, he says... Ask in faith, doubting nothing, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. What kind of faith is required for a prayer life that God answers? It is the opposite of doubting. James says in verse 6, doubting nothing. That that word doubting is diakrenomenos. The the word basically means to Differentiate. It is used often in the New Testament in the sense of judging or disputing or creating distinction. And here it's in the middle voice. It's a reflexive idea. It's kind of a focus on the self. It means to to, 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 to dispute within yourself. A basic divide within yourself. You're just kind of going back and forth. Between two opinions, there is a wavering, a marked inconsistency of attitude toward God. I'm talking to a, a brother who went through a, a massive trial, and he's like, "I went to, I went to, I went to secular counseling. I went to biblical counseling. I, I didn't know what to trust." I didn't know what would work. I was like, do I trust this secular counselor and or do I trust this biblical counselor? And that's a common kind of heart attitude we all have. And the word picture, James paints in verse 6, is, is the swell of the sea. He says, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Have you ever been on a boat where you're like, the, the, the storm, the winds, the storm is about to come, and, and the water is kind of it's kind of going here and there, and there's no direction, and, and, and this, is, this is the person who doubts. You're like, a, you're like a little rubber ducky floating in this unstable sea. He says, if this is describes your spiritual condition, verse seven, he will, that man, verse seven, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. If, if your faith is kind of like this, this is really scary, no wisdom. No wisdom, no help. Verses six and seven. Paint the picture of a spiritually inconsistent and unstable person. The same Greek word for doubt is also used in Romans 4.20. Go go to Romans 4.20 really quick. Here uh, the apostle uh, Paul is describing the faith of Abraham. Look at chapter 4. Go to verse 19. After 4, verse 19, And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with the respect to the promise of God, he did not waver. There's that word doubt there, diacrimenas, right there. He did not waver. He, he He wasn't like the sea going back and forth. He wasn't going, should I do this or do that? He did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. These two verses are helpful because if you remember, when, when you read Genesis 12-20 and the faith of Abraham, certainly his faith was not perfect. So James and Paul is saying, I'm not saying you have to have a perfect faith. Abraham didn't have a perfect faith. I'm not saying there can never, ever be doubt here or there, No. But Paul is saying that for Abraham, there was a consistency in his faith. There was a growing consistency in his faith. James wants us to understand that God responds to us in prayer only when our lives reflect a basic consistency of purpose and intent. God only responds to our prayers when there is a settled, settled, Spiritual integrity within us. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 21. Go to Matthew 21 real quick. And Again, I think, I think James' is, his mind is on these verses. He, his mind is on the, the words of Christ. James, more than any author in the New Testament, is constantly uh, referring to Jesus' teachings, and he's kind of paraphrasing it in his own words. And... Uh, Um, Matthew 21 21 and 22. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt... This is not saying perfect faith. Sinless faith. But a, a, a consistent faith. If you have faith and do not doubt you will not only do what was done to the fig tree but even if you say to this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea it will happen and all things you all things you ask in prayer believing you will receive but that isn't true if you are spiritually inconsistent Let's say you're the kind of person who comes to church for a while and then we don't see you again for a while. Let's say you're faithful for at church for some of the time and then you're not. And, and let's say you, you pray on Monday and then you don't pray on Tuesday through Friday and then on Saturday you, you pray a little bit. While in your bed, you're falling asleep, your prayers turn, turn into scattered mush before you knock out. Or let's say you read the Bible inconsistent way a day this week, Monday, or then, then Wednesday, or then Saturday, and then maybe not at all for a month. See, if, if this is you, if you're this kind of Christian, James says unequivocally, don't expect that you will receive anything from the Lord. Trials will come and you will be alone. I will not answer your prayers. If that's the kind of spiritual life you live, God will never answer your prayers. This is very frightening, because this is many of us. It is possible to live out your Christian life year after year for a long time and never have any of your prayers answered. Then suddenly, and finally, God has to send a trial beyond all proportion to make you a, a, a consistent Christian. Does it ever feel that God never answers your prayer? Well, James says the problem isn't him. He gives to all generously. The problem is is you and me. And what does God say about who you are? If you're this kind of person, how does he describe you? Verse 8, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If you're this kind of inconsistent Christian, James calls you a double-minded man. Di-sukos. Di, the word for two. Sukos, psyches. Two psyches. Two minds. Two souls. It's a person with a a soul divided between Christ and the world. This kind of man or woman is is a fence straddler. The idea is of duplicity. You're, you're distracted by lusts and temptations. You have one soul that believes. You have one soul that does not. You have one foot in the door of the church. You have one foot out the door of the church. John Bunyan calls this person Mr. Facing Both Ways. The problem with our prayer lives is not God. The problem is our own double mindedness. The problem is our own instability. We, uh, James says we are unstable in all, of our, in all of our ways, in all of our spiritual manifestations and exercises. That word unstable is a very unique word. It only occurs here in the New Testament in James 1 8. In the Septuagint, we find it in one place, Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and we find it in Isaiah 54 and when it refers to the effects of of a violent storm. You ever see on the news, a storm comes by and the the whole town is just just like shattered and and desolate and buildings, and and that's a picture of the inconsistent believer. See, God considers that kind of person with that kind of heart as being disloyal. If you're that kind of spiritually inconsistent, that, that, that spiritually inconsistent person, he says you are disloyal to him. And we understand that, don't we? See, if your husband came home and says, you know what? Honey, I love you and I love another woman down the street. Honey, I'm going to give you half my heart. I'm going to give the other half my heart to another woman down the street. What do we call that kind of husband? Faithful, Unfaithful. Unfaithful. In the same way, you don't get some kind of half-credit for giving half of your heart to Jesus. A half-hearted believer is not at all the posture of a faithful believer. And so we transition from the kind of heart required in the various trials of life to the two of the most difficult trials in life, the the trial of poverty and the trial of wealth. We got point number two, uh, overcome the trials of poverty and wealth through a new identity. A key trial that, that James's audience was dealing with was these differing socioeconomic standings. But we all know that the challenges of poverty and the challenge of wealth, it transcends particular situations and times and nations. No matter where you live, no matter what color you are, no matter what time period, what time frame you live in, it is always hard to be poor. And then James will say that even wealth is as much of a trial as poverty is. And so verses 9 through 11 present a contrast between believers in humble circumstances and rich believers. So we begin with the trial of poverty in verse 9. The Jewish Christians who James has been writing to, they've been forced to leave Jerusalem. They're establishing new homes in Syria and northern Palestine, and most of them would have been facing tough financial situations as well as social upheaval and, and even society, societal ostracism. And so he, he starts with the, the brother of humble circumstances in verse 9. And humble it has the idea of, of, of a, a, so, a lower socioeconomic status. And for many Americans kind of James beginning with poverty as an example of, of a trial might feel a little bit out of place because we, we don't really understand what poverty is. There was never a day where we, we had to struggle with money and food. We, we, most of us here, we, we live with the silver spoon stuck in our mouths, but for, for much of the world, for millions of millions of people, poverty is a common ordeal. It is the world's greatest trial. My early twenties, my my friend of mine invited me a mission trip to Mexico to help a missionary uh, that is uh, that my friend's church supported, and we went to a, a tiny village in the Baja Peninsula. And near that village, there was a there was a tiny plantation. I mean, a large plantation with a with a tiny campsite for the day workers and their and their families. And and during the time we were there, we would go to various campsites and to we would go from campsite to campsite and and uh, we, would, we would be living in these, uh, these plot wooden plyboard shacks smaller than the bathroom in the back over there and dirt floors and maybe have a wooden table and there was no refrigeration and there was food just rotting and there's flies all around and everybody's, the women, the children, they're waiting for their husbands. It's 120 degree weather and they're just languishing in this heat, and they're just suffering. And we would, we would go, we would sing songs, we would pass out bags of candy and toys, and then we would cut their hair, and we would wash their hair with medicated shampoo, because all the kids' hair, it was all lice. They were just saturated with lice. And, and then we would sing these songs. And then as I, I remember distinctly as we were done, there was one little, all the kids, and we were passing out candy, with bags of candy and toys they were obviously they were coming to get this from us but there was one lone little girl and she was just she wouldn't come to the group she was just kind of wandering the campsite in her own little world just wandering just wandering this this campsite and I just she walked by me and I took out a piece of candy and I just and she was just like what is you know what is this put it in her mouth, and then kind of the, her, her eyes just lit up. As soon as she realized what was in that plastic bag, she just she ran to the group as we're leaving. She's like, I want a bag too. I want a plastic bag with candy and toys. And the people of these campsites, this is their entire life, these children will grow up and live the same kind of life in the middle of the desert in these wooden shacks for much of the world. This is the norm. So we left these plastic bags of toys for these poor children, but we also left preaching the gospel, singing the gospel. And let's say one of those poor people trusted in Christ and received eternal life. What What would they be able to boast in? Their living situations never change. What what were they supposed to hope in? Where were they to find their joy? What kind of identity were they to form? James says, verse 9, you are to boast in your high position. Boast in your high position. The poor saint is to look beyond the world's evaluation to understand who they are. They are to look to God's view of them. You are to let the Word of God and the reality of your salvation define your value and your worth. Brothers and sisters, your value is not the sum total of your assets. It is not the the number in your 401k. No matter how little you have in the world, believers, James says in verse 9, they have have a high position. It is is an understatement. They have the highest position. highest position. Because if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a part of a royal family, and there is a kingdom waiting for you. Romans 8, 16, 17 says, the Spirit Himself testifies with our Spirit that we are children of God. The world doesn't testify about that. The world looks at your the, the what you don't have and makes a judgment. But, but we test the Spirit says, you are a children of God. And if children, Paul says, also heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. We are heirs of a glorious kingdom to come. We are royalty because we belong to Christ. We are kings and queens. The world doesn't know that yet. So don't let the lack of a, of earthly position determine your value or worth. Fix your eyes on the high position that you have in Christ Today that will be revealed in the to the universe tomorrow. Carry yourself like you own the world. Walk and talk and act like you are a king, like you are a queen, because you are. And one day, everybody will know it. I remember one of my former pastors, Rick Holland. He was he was telling a story. He was in the foyer of the Denny's. It was a crowded Denny's. Denny's. He He's talking to a buddy of his, and they were sharing their lives. And, and then all of a sudden, his buddy looked to my pastor and he said. He said, Rick, take a knee. Take a knee. Right in the foyer. He's like, what? Let us let's let's pray right now on our knees. And the pastor was like, what are you talking about? And he said to him, Rick, one day we're gonna own this world. Let's act like it now. James says that we are kings, that we are kings. Queens. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. We have a high position in Christ today, and one day in the future everybody will know it. So boast in that high position. Hope in that high position. Rejoice in that high position because one day in the future, little boys and girls who beg rich Americans for plastic bags of candies and toys will wear silver crowns and sit on golden thrones. Boast in that high position, brothers and sisters of humble circumstances. Don't let others around you who have more degrees than you do, who work in mighty skyscrapers, who drive fancy cars, who live in better neighbors. Hoods than you do, who belong to a, a higher category of status according to the world's standards. Don't let any of that discourage you because there is no skyscraper in the world more glorious than Christ. Amen? There is no billionaire richer than Christ. Amen? There's no supermodel more beautiful than our fairest Lord Jesus. There is no genius smarter than Christ. No one lives in a better house than the mansion Jesus is building for his saints. And if you belong to him, all of what Christ belongs to you, so boast in Christ. Boast in him alone. Poverty is a great trial, and, and so is wealth. Wealth is a great trial too, James says. Verse 10. The rich man is to boast in in his humiliation. Even Christians struggle with the trial of wealth. You know, personally, I, I do well in, in adversity. I do pretty well in adversity when it's hard. You know, I can muster up that rocky spirit, and I can, I can do this, but when success comes, that's I struggle with success a, a lot more. When success comes my way, I can, I get lazy sometimes. I can, I can be unmotivated. I can become proud and arrogant. When, when the trial of success and wealth comes into my life, I can, I can feel like I'm better than people, more selfish. I lose compassion, less love for other people. There is less empathy and kindness. And that is very common for wealthy Christians, especially Americans. James says that if you're wealthy in any degree, boast in your humiliation. What does that mean? What does that mean, humiliation here? James means boast in the other side of the Christian life. See, the the brother of humble circumstances was to boast, boast in the riches of Christ, but the rich brother or sister is to boast in the other side of the coin of Christianity, boast in the humiliation of Christ. Boast in the sufferings of Christ. Embrace the call to be willing to suffer for the gospel's sake. Be willing to give up all of your material wealth for the glory of the gospel. Let's be really honest here. We wouldn't be so rich if we shared Jesus more with our coworkers and our bosses. Let's be really honest here. You wouldn't have so much. You wouldn't have such a great job if you told more people that homosexuality was a sin. Truth be told, life wouldn't be easy for some of us if we told the person in front of us at Starbucks taking our order with long hair with a pin that said he or she. We wouldn't. Our lives wouldn't be that comfortable. And if we said more often, "Hey, my friend, I say this in love. You are a man." James says, "Boast in boast in that kind of Christianity. Embrace that side of the gospel. Be willing to give up all the material comfort and success of the world for the sake of Christ, because you're you're gonna you're gonna lose all that stuff in the end in the end, anyways." Verse ten, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Verse eleven, for the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass, and it's. Flower falls off and the beauty of its of its appearance is destroyed. James paints this common picture of the of the flowers he used to see bloom on the Galilean hills and 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 he just and he uses that picture to describe the kind of believer chasing money and success and comfort more than Jesus Christ. And he's saying that there were times often where the flowers in the morning, they would spring up, they would be bright and beautiful. And by the time the afternoon came and the intense summer scorching wind of Palestine would come, the grass would be dead. The flowers would fall off as quickly as they sprung up. And verse 11 ends with, So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. All this success we spend so much of our time pursuing is going to fade away as quickly as flowers in the desert. In heaven, for eternity, not a single person will care where you went to school. You will never be asked in eternity what kind of degree you have. Steve Jobs died, the founder of CEO of Apple. In the middle, he had just completed building this massive yacht, this like hundred million dollar yacht. And when they buried him, let me ask you something: Did they bury his yacht with him? Can't take it with you. Have you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? A ruler once held a banquet for all those in his kingdom, and one of the one of the invitees was a great general who happened to. Strike a conversation with the court chaplain. And the general asked, Pastor, can you can you tell me about heaven? Chaplain looked at him carefully and said, Well, yes, I could. The first thing I would tell you, general, is that in heaven you will not be a general. You can't serve two masters. Job said what after he lost everything? Naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. James assumes that for many wealthy Christians, the reason they're wealthy is because, verse 11, they are in the midst of his pursuits They're not chasing Christ. They're not suffering for him. They're in the midst of their business. They're in the midst of maximizing their lives. And he says, that kind of person will fade away like a flower falls off in the middle of the summer heat. James assumes that for many wealthy Christians, the reason they're wealthy, the reason that we're wealthy is because we are in the midst of our pursuits. Will fade away. He assumes that for wealthy Christians, it's not that we're just, we're in the church and we're serving and we're faithful and then we work also. No, he assumes that church is like number 10 on the priority list and we are maxed in in our careers, in our, in our graduate programs, and we are all into this building our kingdom here. That, that is what James is assuming for wealthy believers. Is he Right? So, so he says, rich Christian, boast in the humiliation of Christ. Take up your cross and follow him. Be faithful. Don Wesley said, I am a creature of a day passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit coming from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf. A, a few months hence, and I am no more seen I drop into an unchangeable eternity. Therefore, I want to know one thing. The way to heaven. James says to wealthy American Christians that the way to heaven is that we boast, we embrace the humiliation of Christ, the humiliation of a suffering Savior. you have been paying attention for the last 45 minutes or so. I hope you've realized that James is, has not talked about being a nicer person. Zane's have been so much higher than that. He has bigger fish to catch. He's been he hasn't been talking to nice men and women. He's been talking to new men and new women. He he's he hasn't been trying to teach horses to jump better and better, but to turn horses into wing creatures. And so he's not interested in you praying a nicer sounding prayer. He wants you to have a powerful prayer life. James is no Dave Ramsey. He hasn't told us better money management techniques and skills. Instead, he calls us to embrace our identity in Christ that transcends socioeconomic categories. James is talking to new men and new women. Put on, put on the newness of Christ. James is saying, God will do anything, anything create that kind of person in you. Well, let him do it. Let him do it. Be faithful. You can get through this and have a glorious outcome. The hymn writer wrote, love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So would James accomplish in us these words of truth by the Spirit of God according to the grace of God of the gospel of God. Let's pray.